Well, good morning to everyone. It is good to see you all. Uh, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone, and it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 18. We are in a series. We're working our way through 1 and 2 Samuel, and today we find ourselves in 1 Samuel, chapter 18. 1 Samuel 18. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the chair in front of you, and you'll find 1 Samuel chapter 18 on page 241 of the church Bibles. So if you're not super familiar with the Bible, uh, the chapter numbers are the big numbers, and the verse numbers are the little numbers. We're going to be working, Lord willing, through three chapters this morning, 18, 19, and 20. So we'll read it, and uh, I'll make some comments as we go along. In total, it should be around 45 minutes or so. However, to open things up, I would like to read from you a passage from Ephesians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but you you should listen. This is the word of the Lord from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 14. The Apostle Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory." There are some truths in Scripture which are so profound, so foundational, that they can be at once comforting and unsettling. Ephesians 1, 3-14 is that for me. In there we learn that everything that God does, God does for Himself and for His glory more specifically to the praise of His glory. Did you notice the refrain in this passage, to the praise of His glory? The apostle records that everything that God has done, everything that God is doing, and everything that God will do is to that end. His creation of the world, His salvation of sinners like us, the uniting of all things in Christ is to the praise of His glory. That His grace through Jesus Christ would be known and seen as it is, infinitely glorious. I was in my early 20s when I first learned this, crawling my way through the writings of the old theologian Jonathan Edwards. 
and it changed my life. It was a seismic shift in my universe, a a Copernican revolution in my life. There was a new center of gravity, and it was comforting, and it was unsettling. It was comforting in that I had a new purpose. This is why I live and breathe and have my being in order to see and savor and then celebrate the glory of Jesus Christ. It's comforting in that I didn't have to find my own way through this life. This is the way through this life. This is the North Star. Yet I found it also unsettling. You see, because if God's glory is the center of everything, well, then that means that mine isn't. Life isn't about me realizing my dreams and ambitions and goals. It's, I'm not my own. I belong to the Lord. He spilled the blood of His own Son to purchase me, and He can spend my life however He chooses. Well, it turns out that there is a King, and He isn't me. What we read next uh, in these next three chapters in, in 1 Samuel is a tragic story of a man who thought he was the king. Despite being rejected by God as king, he fought with God to stay on the throne. And this, ma- this man fought against God and went mad. Others became collateral damage in King Saul's war against the Lord. He fought, and he lost the fight, and he became a parody of himself. And this mad king, he serves as a warning to all of us. May the Lord give us ears to hear. A lot has happened in this book so far. Let me give you a very quick update on bringing you up to speed. God's people have been living in the land that He had promised to them. God was their king, ruling them through His word, and they decided they wanted a different kind of king. They wanted a king just like the nations had kings. They wanted one, a king that would go out and fight their battles for them. And so God gave them one. He gave them Chris Hemsworth, a tall and beautiful man named Saul. And Saul was everything you would want in a king, but not very long after Saul was on the throne in Israel, he rebelled against God's word, and the Lord rejected him for being king in Israel. And the Lord sent the prophet Samuel to anoint a new king in Israel, a man that God had chosen himself, a young shepherd boy named David. In the previous chapter, David made his first public appearance in Israel, defeating the giant Goliath, and the Lord won a great victory for his people. And that's where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, that's David speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. And his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out. And was successful wherever Saul sent him, 
so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Let's pray. Father, come now and open our eyes and ears to your word. Give us ears that we might hear, eyes that we might see, the preciousness and beauty of Jesus to be transformed, to become like him for Jesus' sake. Amen. Jonathan is Saul's son. He is heir apparent to the throne of Israel. And we read three times in this paragraph of the unique friendship between David and Jonathan. We read that that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. It's easy to think, as I did when I was a kid, that David and Jonathan are relatively the same age. But when when you trace out the chronology of these stories, you learn that Jonathan is probably 25 or 30 years older than David. This relationship is often understood as a model of friendship, and it, it, is, it is that, and we'll explore that just a little. But more than that, this relationship is a model of discipleship. We see that in the way that Jonathan loves David. He's the heir apparent to the throne in Israel, and he gives his royal robe to David. He gives him his armor, he gives him his sword, he gives him his bow, he gives him his belt. All of those being signs of his royalty, of his position and his place, of his right to the throne. And he he strips them off of himself and hands them to David. This is more than a kindness to young David. This is more of a thanks for defeating the giant for us. This is more than an honor from one friend to another. Jonathan is acknowledging that David has the claim to the throne. David is the true king in Israel. Let's keep reading verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out from all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed a thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Six times in chapter 18, we are told that someone loved David. It seems that everyone loved David. Everyone except Saul. Saul loved David back in chapter 16. Back in chapter 16, David was useful to Saul. He was was serving in the court of Saul. You remember a distressing spirit from the Lord would come upon Saul and then David would play the lyre and soothe him. Well, he loved him then. But now he's suspicious of David. What happened? Well, Saul is feeling the center of gravity shifting in Israel away from him to David. They came home from battle and the women are singing these songs that they've made up in celebration. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Well, if you're familiar with Hebrew poetry, that's just how it worked. Parallel lines would build upon each other. It's a simple song, but Saul can't see the simple song. He can't see the poetry. He's reading everything as David trying to steal glory from himself. 
And Saul's unchecked suspicion becomes deadly. Watch what happens next in verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And when he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Saul's problem back in chapter 16 is still a problem. The Lord had lifted his hand, and a harmful spirit had come over Saul, and he raved in his own house. This is what happens when one turns their back from the Prince of Peace, the source of peace. When you leave that, what's left? Raving madness. David sat before a mad king, soothing him with his music. This time Saul's suspicion, suspicion toward David turned into a jealous rage. And while this young man is serving his king, playing music to calm him in his craziness, Saul tries to kill him. I'm going to pin him to the wall. Instead of being pinned to the wall, David evades him twice. Now, I don't know if that's twice in two settings or twice in the same. But either way, he evades him. Verse 12 is a good summary of what's going on here. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Why had the Lord left Saul? Well, because Saul had left the Lord. Sought to rule his own way, not God's way. And when Samuel confronted Saul in his sins, he did not repent of his rebellion against God's word. He did not turn back to God in repentance and faith. Instead, he turned in on himself and seethed in fury. And as often the case, he blames everyone else for his problems. And so no amount of music therapy is going to do any good to relieve his madness. And spears start flying. Isn't that the way of the mad king? Master of his own fate, deaf to the warnings of God the Holy Spirit, crashing on the rocks of his rebellion and blaming God and everyone else for the wreckage. He is a practitioner in futility, a man who's making a living beating against the wind blindfolded and afraid, taking swings at anything that makes noise, throwing spears at phantoms in fog. That's the mad king, fighting God and hurting everyone around him. 
Well, in verse 13, we see that Saul removes David from him. He just wants nothing more to do with this young man. But he does this in, in, in jealousy. And this is what jealousy does. It isolates. He puts David in, in charge of a large army regiment. And he sends him into battle. No doubt hoping that this inexperienced shepherd boy would be killed in the front lines of battle. Not to mention all the danger that that puts other soldiers in. But verse 14 tells us the Lord was with David and he had success in all his undertakings. Killing David became Saul's obsession. He was consumed with it. He was desperate. So desperate that the next measures that he takes is he starts dangling his own daughter's in front of David, hoping to catch David in some way or another. Remember, the king had promised the person who destroyed the the giant Goliath would then get one of his daughters to marry. And Saul is holding that promise over David. He tells them, "If if you fight the Philistines, I will give my daughter to you. Well, David is too humble for that. He's just a poor shepherd. And he can't imagine becoming the son-in-law to a king. And so Saul gives that promised daughter to someone else. And then Saul learns that another one of his daughters is is in love with David. His daughter Michael is in love with David. So he tries this tactic again. He tells him, you go get a hundred Philistine foreskins and I will give you my daughter. A rather gruesome, if not disturbing, bride price. But the king isn't planning a wedding. He's planning a funeral. Why such a weird request? Look who asks for foreskins of their enemies. Well, think about it. What's the one thing that would stir the fury of an army more than anything else? Would it not be the desecration of one of their fallen soldiers? Well, it seems to me that Saul is hoping to excite the full fury of the Philistines against David because an enemy of my enemy is my friend. I'll get, to, I'll get the Philistines to do what I can't do. He can avoid my spears. But what about an army of Philistines? Well, the plot fails. David comes home with 200 foreskins and he marries Michael. David's success just keeps growing, and Saul's desperation just keeps growing. And he starts to involve others, even more of those in his own household. Skip down to chapter 19, verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you. And because his deeds have brought you good, for he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then do you sin against innocent blood? 
by killing David without cause. And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. So Jonathan steps in to try and talk some sense into this mad king. What had David done? He never sinned against Saul. Everything David did was for the benefit of Saul. He laid down his life for Saul. He, defied, he, he defeated a giant for Saul. And the Lord worked a great salvation for the entire country. And John's is just saying, remember, Dad, you saw that. You rejoiced with everyone else. And then we read in verse 6, Saul listened, and he swore, as the Lord lives. He brings God's own name into this. He shall not be put to death. And so, David returns to service. Let's pick up reading in verse 7. And Jonathan said to David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with spear in hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. David returns to service, but then there's conflict again. And David goes out and he wins some war again. No doubt building upon his reputation. And rather than the mad king rejoicing for the victory of his warrior, old patterns of jealousy return, and he descends into further madness. Verse 9 is such a vivid picture, isn't it? This tortured king, I imagine him slumped to his side on his throne in his house with his skin crawling as he's listening to the soothing music of his enemy, seething with hate, his brow furrowed and his spear in his hand. And all the hate and frustration of this situation of fighting against God to lose the throne is directed towards the young man sitting in front of him playing on a harp. And David's music falls on deaf ears. This king is filled with chaos. His head is stirred up like muddy water. And he'll do just about anything to keep his throne. He'll even kill the greatest warrior in his army. Can you see his fist tightening around the spear? He springs up from his chair and he launches the javelin at David. But David is ready and ducks and the spear drives into the wall behind him. 
adding a third hole to the other two, the other two monuments to to Saul's madness. Sort of like divots and holes in drywall from other mad kings fighting with their spouses. Jealous someone else got promoted. Furious that life is not going as I planned. David fled from this mad king and escaped into the night. And then the chase begins. The chase that will last, by the way, the rest of 1 Samuel. The mad king, jealous, in defense of self-sovereignty, fighting with God and chasing down the chosen one of God. And this obsession will consume Paul the rest of his life, Saul the rest of his life. Verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David saying, bring him up to me in the bed, then I might kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed and the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus? And let my enemy go so that he has escaped. And Michael answered Saul. He said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? By the way, Michael is the third of Saul's children that he has now poisoned against David. First Jonathan, which didn't work. Then his other two daughters, which also didn't work. In fact, Jonathan and Michael both protect David. Michael, his wife, lets him down from the window and plays the old Ferris Bueller's Day Off thing and kind of gets him laid in the bed and puts stuff around him, pretends that he's sick. But Saul's not buying that. Bring the whole bed. I'll just spear him in his bed. It's much easier. In the passage that we read at the opening Uh, This morning, Psalm chapter 59 was written by David in this event. When Saul sent messengers to kill him, David wrote this psalm. That night, perhaps moments before his wife lowered him down to the window, he wrote these words to the Lord. He said, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Verse 18. Now David fled and escaped. And he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went to live at Naoth. And it was told to Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. 
Then Saul sent messengers to take David. When they saw the company of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Well, then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Seku and asked, where is Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they're at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul among the prophets. David seeks refuge among old Samuel in Ramah. That's where Samuel lives. Of course, Saul knows where Samuel lives, and so they have to relocate. They relocate to the town of Naoth. But eventually, word gets back to the king, and they send, he sends messengers after David. Now, there's a lot of debate about what exactly happens to these messengers as they're on their way to arrest David. What does it mean that the Spirit of the Lord came upon them and they prophesied and then were unable to apprehend David? Who knows? We don't know for sure. The point is, the Lord is protecting David. His enemies can't even get to him. God is acting as his shield, the Spirit of God wrapping around him. We're reminded of that time in the life of Jesus, when Jesus' own enemies, the Pharisees, sent officers to arrest Him, and they came back without Jesus, saying, no one ever spoke like this man. Something came over them. You see, no matter how resolved you are, no matter how much you're willing to put in and spend on your rebellion against God, if you set yourself against the will of God, you will lose. Because even the enemies of God are under His control. Three sets of messengers fail, and so Saul goes himself. The mad king takes up the chase. But the same thing happens to him. Now, if you've been with us for this series in 1 Samuel, this might be interesting to you. There's a little bit of a reversal going on. From chapters 9 to 11, in Saul's ascent to the throne, you'll remember he goes to Ramah, and he asks, he goes to a well, and he asks where Samuel is. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and he prophesies like one of the prophets, and the people marvel. Is Saul among the prophets? Well, the same sequence is happening, but in reverse. Saul is becoming a parody of himself. He has set himself up against the Lord and his anointed. And what is happening? He's being stripped of his royal garments. He's lying buck naked, and people are making fun of him. Is this the king? Is he among the prophets? He's got David within his reach. His enemy is right there in the same town. But he can't touch him. 
He's powerless to do anything. What a picture of the plight of man against his maker. You wonder if young David in Naoth sees, saw buck naked, and he stands there clothed in Jonathan's robes, Jonathan's royal robes, standing over the king, embarrassed, unable to do anything, shaking his head. You almost hear the foreshadowed whispers of the Lord on the cross, Father, forgive him, for he knows not what he does. Chapter 20. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far be it, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Saul had just had this incredible encounter with God the Holy Spirit. And you wonder whether or not his heart towards David had changed. Well, David's convinced that it hasn't changed. You'll, you'll forgive him of this, won't you? He's, there's been a few signs that his heart won't change, soldiers and spears and such. And so he's planning to run for good. But Jonathan's his friend. He can't let him do this. He loves him too much. He can't imagine life without David. And he's thinking, maybe my dad is different now. Maybe the Lord has changed his heart. He still thinks he can protect David. But the king knows that Jonathan loves David. He knows that Jonathan will protect David. And so David says, he's going to hide, from, he's going to hide his true intentions from you, Jonathan. And so David comes up with a plan to test Saul's intentions. If he is changed, this is how we'll know. So show me your faith by your works kind of thing. So David will skip out on like Thanksgiving meal, a big meal where they would get together. And when the king asks, where's David? Jonathan, you just say, well, he asked permission and I sent him home so that he could celebrate Thanksgiving back home. And if the king is cool with that, then we'll know he's cool with me. God has changed his heart and all's good. But if he's not cool with that, well, then we'll know his true intentions and I'll run. And then David makes Jonathan swear that he'll remain loyal to him. And Jonathan renews his covenant with him. Let's pick up reading in verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan. And more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. 
If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I might not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as his own soul. So by reading this, we can make sense of of Jonathan's actions at the beginning of our passage in chapter 18. This is why Jonathan gave his clothes to David. Jonathan recognizes David is the true king, the anointed one of God. We see that in verse 13. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Jonathan strips himself of the right to rule and asks the true king to show him Love and love for his household. Isn't verse 14 and 15 so interesting? Jonathan is telling David, who's running for his life, Jonathan, who is protecting David by telling him this, says this, If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I might not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of your enemies. How differently did Jonathan see this situation? On the surface, it looks like Jonathan is the one protecting David. But that's not what Jonathan saw. He's asking David to remember the covenant. He's asking David to protect him. And he's making sure that David reaffirms his love for him. The plan works. The king's intentions are revealed. And when the king learns that Jonathan let David go home... Saul throws another spear, and this one at his own son, Jonathan. His jealous rage leads to an attempted murder on the life of his own son. He is a mad king. In his fight for self-sovereignty, everything is binary. You're either with me or you're my enemy. Jonathan escapes. But had had Saul succeeded in pinning Jonathan to the wall, he would have destroyed the very thing he was trying so hard to keep, ending his own dynasty. Now, one might think that a supernatural encounter with God the Holy Spirit, like Saul had, might change his heart. He might have realized, you would think, after sending three delegations and going himself, and David's right there and you can't touch him, that maybe God was saying something's at work here. But he didn't. He could not abide the thought that anyone else would sit on the throne. I am king and there is no other. Hadn't he sworn to not kill David? Hadn't he seen that God was protecting David? This mad king, is, his life is a roller coaster. Well, Jonathan says, word to David, it's not safe. David flees. Let's finish reading in verse 41 and 42. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. 
Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went to the city. David fled for the wilderness. Jonathan left for the city. Hardly a more bitter, heartbreaking goodbye than this one. So what's the point? This text is a mirror. May the Lord give us eyes to look into that mirror and see that there's a mad King Saul in all of us. And that mad King Saul is jealous over the throne, raging against that universal shift away from my glory to God's glory. We are Saul in this story with spears aplenty, ready to release our fury should any get in the way. And we fight and we cuss and we claw and we clamor. And yet Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is just as true as ever. We feel the ground under us giving way, pulling everything to the true center, pulling us with it. Oh, how we hate that pull. So we start blaming everyone around us. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is what's happening in your life. You pick the, the perfect day to come to church, for here you get to learn that you are not the center of your universe. But there is a center. God is the center of your universe. And like Saul, the, mo the more you fight against God's will to make much of Jesus in your life, the more you will end up destroying yourself. Turn. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your preference for self-rule. Jesus belongs on the throne in your life. Confess that sin to the Lord. And you'll not only be saved, but you'll be added to a family for whom this is their song. that Jesus is the center and that's the best place for him to be. And when you do, you'll have joy and you'll have peace and the madness will fade. You see all the jealousy and the fear of losing control, Saul poured it out on David. Saul thought he could get rid of David. But the Lord protected David, and David lived, and Saul was destroyed. And similarly, all of humanity's jealousy and fear of losing control became hate, which we poured out on innocent Jesus. And our sin against God was laid on Him. He stood condemned in our place. 
but God raised him from the dead. He ascended into heaven where he sits right now on the throne as king of kings and lord of lords. Don't fight. Jesus sits on the throne. There's only one way to respond to this shift of the center of gravity in your life, and that's to respond in the way that Jonathan did. To look to the anointed one, to turn to him for mercy and grace, to admit he is the only true king, to confess your need for him, to strip yourself of your own royal robes, your right to rule your life and give your heart, soul, mind, and strength over to him. Jesus made it clear in Mark chapter 8, 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Cornerstone, this ghost of a mad king still lives in all of us. And he must be deposed. And how? By the Gospel. Admitting that Ephesians 1 is true. That everything is and, and, and was and always will be about Jesus. And to live this life for His glory, not your own. And when you do, you will find that everything that you wanted by staying on the throne in your life is already yours. It turns out you didn't have to fight for it at, at all. It's already yours in Christ. The freedom that you seek, it's in Him. The acceptance you want, it's in Him. The approval you need, it's in Him. The security you're after, it's in Him. The love you crave is in Him. And the less that you seek control over your life and others, the more you hand that control over to the Lord, the freer you become. Jonathan saw David was the true king, that the crown sat on his head. Would that we would all see Jesus as the true king and see the beauty in Jesus which will keep us from being jealous of others, which will give us peace to the madness in our hearts. Think about this the next time you feel that frustration and fury welling up and you feel that mad king starting to grab hold of his spear. Remember James chapter 4 verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. There's no need to throw spears. That person that annoys you, they're not your enemy. The true enemy has already been defeated. Your desire to fight in a war, it's folly. The war has already been won. Rest this week in the finished work of the cross and join your brother Jonathan in working to see the true king recognized for who he is to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we confess to you that we have fought against you for space on the throne of our lives. That we have acted more like Jonathan than like Saul, or more like Saul than like Jonathan. 
would you forgive us? We have seen Jesus' inflexible claim to our lives, and we've perceived it as a threat. We've acted against you, seeking our own way to be our own sovereign. We have sinned. Lord, how many of the fights that we're in are simply our desire to be the boss and call the shots. Lord, forgive us of this latent desire to be king. How much discontentment in our lives is simply us disagreeing with your right to the throne. Forgive us. Holy Spirit, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, will you enable us to lay down our right to rule our lives? Enable us to walk free from having to control everything and seeing innocent people as enemies. Preserve us. May our lives reflect the truth of Ephesians 1. And may they be to the praise of the glory of his grace.